Hey, Talking Feds team, take a moment to tell us what you like and what you'd like us to improve about this podcast. Head to our website, talkingfeds.com, and participate in our listener survey. It only takes a few minutes, and you can complete the survey anonymously. Thanks. Everyone, welcome, and listeners, welcome back to Talking Feds, a prosecutor's roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials for a dynamic discussion of the most important legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. I'm a former United States attorney uh, and a current Washington Post columnist. Today, for people who aren't in the room, we're in Austin, Texas, for a live recording of a very... Arguably, maybe not even arguably, the coolest town in America, right? uh, A very special episode here at the Texas Tribune Festival, where we've had two really great days, uh, chock full of panels on timely and important topics and fantastically knowledgeable commentators. And I think we will extend that run of great panels. Our topic is the troubled state of voting rights in advance of the 2020 election could not be more timely and critical. And we certainly have four fantastically knowledgeable commentators on the topic whom we're thrilled can join us today. And let me briefly introduce them. Joaquin Castro, the congressman probably known to many of you, uh, represents the 20th Congressional District of Texas in the U.S. House of Representatives. Uh, That's since 2013, and for 10 years before that, he was a member of the the Texas House of Representatives. First, thank you very much for joining. Yeah, good to be with you. (laughs) Thanks for having me. As many of you know, and is also germane to our topic, he serves as um, campaign chair for his uh, brother, former HUD Secretary Julian Castro, who is running for president and for whom he seems uh, fated to be confused uh, by, by MSNBC day, this week. Times. This is a serious question. He was, he was said, you guys at MSNBC know that's me, right? I grew a beard. Do I need a face tattoo? Um, Apparently, I do need a face but, tattoo. But, uh, <laughs> now it's just a matter of what I'm going to get on my face. But he, he's the only Castro in the room. And I actually have a serious question of, about the campaign. You know, as attorneys anyway, which I guess for who you're surrounded by, you know, you're told don't represent a sibling, someone you're too close to, because you have this emotional connection that makes it hard to be, you know, cool-headed. Does this not come up in a in a campaign where I don't know someone attacks your brother and you want to, you know, maybe improvidently duke it out, or are you, you know, how do you stay cool-headed? Seriously, yeah, that happens every time I read Twitter. I <laughs> no, I mean, you know, my brother. My brother and I have been in politics now for several years, and um, yeah, I mean, you're there to support your family member and do everything that I can. I'm flying out tomorrow morning to Iowa to campaign for my brother, um, and so it's it's been exciting. It does take. They used to say that to go into politics or to be in politics, you needed thick skin. In the age of social media now, I think you need Teflon. <laughs> uh, it really is, and maybe no fingers. Yeah. yeah. Okay, to my immediate left, Ellen Weintraub, who is the chair of the Federal Election Commission, which protects, or does its best in our troubled times, the integrity 
of the campaign finance uh, process. And she's, she's got uh, extensive experience in election and election law. I, something uh, many of you may have seen an uh, interesting incident from yesterday when there were, there were efforts by, this is how bad and ugly it's gotten back in D.C. The Republicans wanted to, you had a weekly me- uh, memo or weekly rule, and they wanted to block the publication of it because of one uh, paragraph. They hoped not to see the light of day. Strategy backfired, I think it's fair to say. Can you, can you explain how you handled this one? Well, I, I put out a statement last week just summarizing what the FEC, how the FEC has interpreted the law of, uh, the foreign na- on the foreign national ban and what a thing of value is. It's something that obviously a lot of people are talking about. I thought it would be helpful to put out something from the FEC. Um, it can't be, it's a proposed uh, interpretive rule that we can't vote on right now because we don't have a quorum at the FEC, which is another whole problem. Uh, but I, I still think that it was a it was a sort of a vanilla summary of what the law has been, and I thought it would be useful to have it out there for people to see. Uh, my Republican colleague did not think it was a useful thing to have out there for the public to see, and so really for the first time ever said when we put out our weekly digest that I could not put that in, uh, and therefore we couldn't put the digest out because I insisted on having it in as every other commissioner who has ever put a statement out has had it in the weekly digest. Uh, so when we couldn't put out the digest, I just tweeted it out. Um, <laughs> Tweet at a time. 57 <laughs> tweets. <laughs> And it's all over Twitter now. Yeah, yeah well, that's, that is the point. That's I think you were saying part. she got like 10,000 new followers and so oh, much more attention to tweet number 34 than we ever would have. Uh, yeah, that was a good one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, thrilled and honored that Vanita Gupta is here. Uh, she is now the president and CEO of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. But um, prior to that, she served as the principal deputy assistant attorney general and then as head of the civil rights division at the U.S. Department of Justice from 2014 to 2017. Um, Now, this was 2014 is already there have been some real setbacks in the Supreme Court, a challenging time for enforcement of a voting rights agenda. In brief, because we'll get to the individual areas, you know, what 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 does it look like for a progressive activist assistant attorney general in the voting rights area. What sorts of things could you do even confronted with the legal obstacles and challenges that you that you in fact inherited? Well, I came into the Justice Department a year after the Supreme Court had really gutted the heart of the Voting Rights Act in the Shelby County decision. Uh, and uh, it used to be before the Shelby County decision in 2013. Which that, we'll get to, by the way. Which we'll talk about. But the Justice yeah. Department had to pre-clear changes, local changes in administ- the way administra- uh, elections were carried out um, in order to ensure that there was no racial discrimination or impact in racial impact in those changes in states that had long histories of discrimination. And so... This was really the heart of the Voting Rights Act, and the Voting Rights Act has long been considered probably one of the most effective federal pieces of legislation. And so we had to then, there were literally a whole team of folks in the voting section who no longer had jobs, who used to analyze these maps and do this work. And we had to rise to the challenge to figure out in the immediate hours that after the Shelby County decision, states like North Carolina, states like Texas, uh, went to work to pass some of the biggest 
uh, voter suppression laws. Joyce is also Alabama, Alabama was quickly passed, falling. Alabama passed theirs in advance and just put it into effect days Well, Texas, too, the day after, I Texas, think. Isn't that right? Well, yeah, North Carolina yeah. was literally just hours later. Yeah. And, we, yeah. and so we then had to get to work to challenge these laws. Uh, and we ended up spending years challenging these laws. But meanwhile, and we'll talk about this. But so the DOJ came in was the U.S. v. North Carolina. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, we don't see those captions as much these days. You don't see those yeah. captions as much these <laughs> days, or unless uh, when we we'll talk about that <laughs> as well. But you know, the reality is Texas had a number of elections um, that took place pursuant to a law that years later was found to have been motivated by intentional racial discrimination, and um, over 200 officials in the state of Texas were elected pursuant to the Texas ID law that. Uh, that federal courts then later found to be unconstitutional, and that's that's the problem that we're in, and I'm sure we'll talk about it. We will, but and of course, I don't. I assume those 200 remain in office, and like so many things in this area, you know, you think back to Bush v. Gore and the butterfly ballot. Once the once the eggs are broken, it's very hard to. Yeah, I mean, this is the problem with um, with voting rights is that when officials enact laws at the state level, and sometimes at the federal level, but at the state level that result in voter suppression found to have been animated by intentional racial discrimination. Very which hard was finding to the make. Case, it's a very difficult finding. In North Carolina, their state law was found to have been enacted with surgical precision to disenfranchise African Americans in the state of North Carolina. It took years to get that ruling. But the problem is there's no consequence for the officials who pass these laws. And so elections take place, people are disenfranchised, um, and this was what got lost in the Shelby County decision, and I can talk some more about what we are all doing to rise to the challenge and what we're doing in the face of the 2020, in, in the face of 2020 election, but um, we will also be entering the 2021 redistricting cycle without the full protections of the Voting Rights Act for the first time since 1965, and yeah. so it's why we're all working hard right now um, to kind of meet the moment. Um, finally, I just want to introduce or, or reintroduce, because anyone who's listened to the podcast knows Joyce Vance, literally a charter-talking uh, Fed, but, and a lot of people know her background as a U.S. attorney. She's actually a hands-on litigator in this area, in fact. Can you give us the kind of quick summary of the work you're doing on behalf of New York? So... I live in Alabama, which means doing voting rights work is pretty much a full-time job for lawyers in my state, where the state of Alabama has sued the Department of Commerce, arguing that only data regarding citizens can be used in drawing voting districts. And that might sound like a reasonable proposition on its face, but for one thing, the Constitution says count all people. And the law is well established in this area that we use data on, on residents, on people who are present. So Alabama is trying to get a second bite at the apple. The New York Attorney General decided that she would intervene because she didn't believe that when Alabama sued the Department of Justice, that she could rely on the Department of Justice to really vigorously defend that action. And so I now represent as local counsel the state of New York, about 12 other states, a number of municipalities, including um, Seattle is one of the, our municipalities in New York City, uh, who have intervened so that we can give the case the defense that it deserves. Because if this is a loss in Alabama, it will impact the entire country. Okay. Um, we've got this 
really, I mean, we've got a daunting list even to just say and try to cover in 45 minutes, not to, not to mention trying to fight back in the field about, but there's so many different um, ways. It's so, such a multifarious problem. We have poll closures, access to voting materials, insecure voting technologies, possibly foreign interference with voting technologies, uh, restrictive statewide voting laws, barriers to registration, redistricting challenges, bogus charges of voter fraud, continuing influence of money, and, you know, and now the whole sort of overlay and threat of foreign misinformation and manipulation of social media, unlawful spending, and I'm sure I've left out half of them. Um, but that's the kind of minefield that, that the, you know, the sort of heroes in front of you in, are, are, you know, are trying to navigate. Let's start at least briefly at the top with, you know, Joyce just mentioned the Constitution says things have to be counted equally, but it's a little surprising what the Constitution says about the thing we really take to be bedrock. I'll quote Vanita, voting is the language of American democracy, the ability to participate in civic life, to have a voice in choosing the elected officials whose decisions impact our lives, families, and communities is at the core of what it means to be an American. No one would dispute that. We learned that in third grade, but it's actually not really in the Constitution. There's a lot in the Constitution about equal treatment, but well, what is there? And what, what, what does the Constitution tell us about this one person, one vote principle that we take to be canonical? Anybody? Well, it doesn't really talk a lot about yeah. the right to vote. I mean, that's one of the it's interesting a, things. It's it's implicit. It's clear that the founding fathers assumed that we had a right to vote. It's not white spelled men out. Did, yeah as clearly as we might want it to be in 2019. And I mean, it actually said, so you have to, the white, that white men is implied as that they have the right to vote, but actually also the constitution had the three fifths language in there where African-Americans were constituted three fifths of a person for purposes of the census and for, for voting, which I mean, women and folk, people of color did not have the right to vote. So the struggle for the right to vote and to achieve it for all citizens of the United States has been a long struggle in this country uh, and remains an ongoing struggle as efforts to disenfranchise, uh, in particular, continued efforts to disenfranchise uh, Latinos and African Americans in this country remains all too real and all too alive. And it's, it's really true. I mean, there's no, you, I, you know, con law students are surprised to learn there's no exact anchor in the, the Constitution uh, you know, Bush v. Gore, if you consider that authority for anything, but says, you know, there's no federal constitutional right to vote, which which seems stunning. And of course, there's a lot of protection and, and the Constitution. There's many constitutional arguments to raise, but we start with this most fundamental and yet unarticulated right. Um, uh, so Vanina mentioned that there were there were sort of a killer combo of three Supreme Court cases in the last 10 years that we could take two episodes just detailing, and we're not, because there's so much to move on to. But I want to sort of touch on each of them and just ask uh, for reactions in the panel about, you know, is there anything to be done since it's the Supreme Court interpreting the Constitution? What What is being done at all? So we have these three five to four decisions that people here are probably familiar with. And first, Shelby County, which I think it is fair to say gutted the most important provision of the Voting Rights Act, which had a sort of coverage formula for deciding when when states who made changes to voting had to get 
advance clearance from the DOJ. No more. The door is sort of open for Congress to come in and act, but it certainly it hasn't done anything. Um, so let me ask you or anyone, how big a practical effect has that had? I mean, states rushed in to fill the, the breach. You know, how big has that been, not just, you know, on an actual on the ground level? Uh, there have been over 28 states that have enacted voter suppression laws of one form or another since the Shelby County decision. And as I said, um, litigation to challenge them in a number of areas has been successful, has led to the state legislatures meeting to change those laws. But the suppressive effect has been pretty profound. And Are they very different one from the other? The, the 23 or they, you know, I know a lot they of them are, are voter mean, so ID there, there are a lot of different ways in which um, voting has been made harder um, post Shelby. So states will do it by cutting early voting or cutting same day registration or cutting, creating really restrictive requirements to obtain voter IDs and then demanding that that voters have IDs at the polls. Um, there are any number of ways in which um, states have done this. We just released at the leadership conference, the organization that I work for, a report documenting the systematic closing of polls, poll sites, polling places all over the country. Texas being the number one, we call it a mega closer. Um, but since the Shelby County decision, um, close to 1,700 poll sites have been closed. These used to be the kinds of hyper-local changes that uh, would need to be pre-cleared in states that had long histories of racial discrimination and voting no longer. And so there no longer is an ability to assess what the racial impact is of these systematic poll closures on communities of color all over the state of Texas. Right, and, and just to, so the pre-clearance process, it wasn't just in advance, but you could ask certain questions of, it was a process where people, they really had to make the case to the department, correct? Yeah, the state, the states and the jurisdictions face the yeah. burden of proving that racial that the change did not have a racial impact. That now has totally been turned on its head. And while the Voting Rights Act remains law in other sections of it, the onus now is on the voter to establish that racial discrimination animated it. And it sounds really wonky, but it makes a huge difference. Right. And for the most part, it's really hard to find out when little changes are made in, in local areas. But when you amass a lot of changes, you really can have a profound racial impact that no longer can be detected and fixed. In Congressman, do you, have a, do you have a, so for instance, this happened in Texas. What yeah. did the proponents of it assert was the, re, I assume they didn't say it was to disenfranchise. Why oh, did they no, say I we mean, don't want people to vote early? What, how can you defend I that? I think a lot of it is couched in good government. It's couched in making sure that Democracy is protected. That the ballot is protected. You mean 20th, against fraud? Is that right, the notion? Yeah, all the arguments were against fraud, against abuse. For example, in 2011 in Texas, that was the year that uh, well, it was a redistricting year, but it was also the voter ID year where voter ID was passed. And a lot of the focus was both on redistricting and on voter ID. But when you think about voter suppression, it's basically a point shaving scheme. It's it's doing little things that create obstacles to people voting. So for example, with voter ID, uh, it may be that if you pass a voter ID law, 95% of the people are gonna be able to meet the requirement and turn over their ID. But you know that within that margin of 5%, it's mostly the people that are voting for the other party or yeah. the other candidates that are not gonna have their ID and they're not gonna vote. So there were some lesser known things. For example, it used to be in Texas that if you were deputized in say Travis County to register voters, that you could go register voters throughout the state. 
Well, in 2011, I believe, the legislature changed it so that you had to become deputized in each county in which you wanted to register voters. So it's little things like that that just make it tougher for groups to organize, to go out and register folks. Bear in mind that Texas routinely has, uh, has one of the lowest voter registration rates, but also historically one of the lowest turnout rates in the country. And these things have made it tougher. And y'all, you know, we talk about the Voting Rights Act. Uh, I'm worried about the Voting Rights Act getting reauthorized when it comes up again. If it comes up or if it came up while President Trump was in office, I don't think any part of the Voting Rights Act would be reauthorized. Right. So, I mean, we have this dynamic where the court said in striking it down, this is based, said the court, on antiquated information, the bad old days of the 60s. But we'll still keep the basic right in there, Section 5, but Congress needs to have a new kind of system and findings. But, of course, I, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a mixed blessing on, you know, for, for advocates on the ground because what could be possible? That's, that's kind of a, a, a possible hornet's nest to open. Yeah. Um, Can I just make that concrete for a second? Yeah. Because I think what the congressman you, you, you is You thought that was a little abstract. Is, yeah. No, I think it's so important, and I think it's worth underlining it. In Alabama, we had an ID act that was passed in anticipation of a, a bad decision in Shelby County. And so there were stories in the 2018 election about a 94-year-old veteran who had voted in every election that he was eligible to vote in, who suddenly couldn't vote because he didn't have a driver's license, which was the gold standard for ID in Alabama. And what it really meant was that the people for whom it was most difficult to get these forms of ID, because maybe they lived in a county where the registrar's office wasn't open more than four hours a week, and they worked, or, or maybe they were older and they couldn't get there. And the Secretary of State would get past this in court by saying, well, I have a mobile van that'll go out and make IDs for these people, which really wasn't true. And so you would hear about older people, people with disabilities, working moms, people who just didn't have that flexibility, who suddenly were unable to vote. And I think that that's the shame of this. Just to, right now in Congress, I testified two weeks ago for H.R. 4, which is a federal bill to restore the Voting Rights Act. And there is a proposal of a new formula in this bill. Um, and there's been a lot of thinking that has gone into it. It will almost likely pass the House in the fall and then we'll enter Senator Mitch McConnell's legislative graveyard and not get a hearing. Uh, but the whole point, and I testified in the end of January on H.R. 1, which is this amazing omnibus bill to restore our democracy, to unrig it, not just to restore the Voting Rights Act, but really around we'll, automatic we'll voter registration. Yeah. It's a whole list. It also went into Senator McConnell's graveyard and never got a hearing in the Senate. But these are the markers that we are establishing, that the House is passing a lot of really important legislation, thank you, um, going nowhere in the Senate, but to mark the democracy reform agenda that needs to take place as the first order of business in a first 100-day Congress in a new uh, electoral situation come 2020, which I hope all of you will take we a part in We need a Democratic President, voting. Democratic House, That's right. Democratic Senate. Pro-civil rights. And by the way, H.R., one is no uh, coincidence. This was actually in the last Congress the first thing that the the, the newly ascendant uh, majority in the House um, uh, introduced. All right. So so quickly now we got a couple other tough decisions out there. The Ruscio case from this last term, uh, the Supreme Court got the federal courts completely out of the business of gerrymandering. There used to be arguments to be made 
of the sort that Vanita identified of, you know, if you really analyze, there's, there was at least a hope of overturning some of the ridiculous gerrymandered districts. Does everyone have a sense of what a gerrymandering is? Yeah. Um, and um, uh, so, so, I mean, really just a, even, you know, the court said in, in getting out of the business, we have these ridiculous sort of shapes that were obviously done to erode the one person, one vote principle. There's no doubt about it. That's what they're for. But there's no, there seems to be no sort of real um, path, at least at the federal level. And any, um, is there any efforts that, that people are aware of to try to push back again? Or is that just now a new fact of the landscape? Anyone? I, th I think there's some yep. sense of, yeah. Yeah, I mean, in the thing that I've advocated for a while yeah. is that I think that you have to take redistricting out of the hands of politicians, really Republican or Democrat, and you have to entrust that to an independent commission to then go draw those districts. Uh, it exists in California. Uh, it exists partly in Ohio. Arizona. So it, Arizona, it exists in states that are quote-unquote blue and states that are red. So it doesn't necessarily advantage one party or another. Uh, but as long as you have politicians drawing their own districts uh, and parties involved in that, they're going to be skewed like that. And now, as you saw in North Carolina, because of computer technology over the years, you can do it so precisely. You can disenfranchise communities so precisely in a way that was tougher to do four decades ago or three decades ago. It's very pernicious. Yeah, anyone who's ever worked on these, it's, they're surgical. I mean, it's amazing to me that in this room when you asked if people yeah. know about everyone's like, of course we yeah. know about gerrymandering. But I mean, it's not the most sexy issue. In, in, but yet I do think there's been a real awakening around what the effects of gerrymandering have been um, in the allocation of power. And it's frankly why we care about the census, because it will be the basis of the next 10 years of redistricting and potential gerrymandering. But the thing that I think is really exciting in the states that the congressman was mentioning, in November of 2018, in the lead up to the midterms, there were a bunch of ballot initiatives in red and blue states around creating these independent commissions. And they passed because people are tired of politicians choosing their right. voters rather than voters being able to choose right. their politicians. And this is, I think there is a movement afoot around this that I think is really important. We're also seeing a lot of state court lit litigation that even though the Supreme Court kind of foreclosed the possibility of having federal courts deal with partisan gerrymandering, there have been some recent decisions at the state court level that have vindicated um, the notion of unlawful partisan gerrymandering. Yeah, so I think there's a state strategy, and that's what it has to be. Okay, the final, you know, big, uh, uh, you know, decision of the terrible three: good old Citizens United enshrining the First Amendment rights of corporations. Um, uh, Ellen, you, I, you know, I know the FEC is very active in general in the area of campaign finance. What's, what's your sense of the overall impact? It's now been uh, with us for you know many years. How how is Citizens United sort of distorting the um, the political landscape, and what if anything is there to be done? Well, you know, it's interesting because it's had a different impact than I think a lot of people thought it would. When it first passed, a lot of people were concerned, oh, the big corporations who have billions of dollars in profits, they're going to be plowing that money into elections, uh, and they're going to you know, basically take over the political 
uh, landscape. And that didn't really happen, in part because big corporations have shareholders, they have boards of directors, they've got customers, they've got a lot of stakeholders that they don't want to annoy. And, you know, they've got people on both sides of virtually every issue. But what has happened is, it, with Citizens United and its progeny, is we've seen the creation of these super PACs, uh, where individuals can give millions of dollars. Uh, so, you know, we talk about one person, one vote, and the, uh, that we want everybody to be equal. Well, that doesn't apply according to the Supreme Court when it comes to money. In fact, the Supreme Court has held, and this goes back to Buckley v. Vallejo in 1976, that um, when it comes to money, that leveling the playing field is antithetical to the First Amendment. Think about that. In every other field that we have any kind of competition in the United States, we want a level playing field. And the Supreme Court has said, you cannot have a level playing field. That is contrary to the Constitution to have a level playing field in terms of the money that is available to candidates in order to get their message out, because the court says if the only way to do that is to limit somebody in how much money they can raise and spend, and that will limit the uh, messaging that they can do. But if you look at this issue, of how, the, the, the goal of all this is to get the most robust political debate. And in order to do that, another way of looking at it, and this is, for example, the way they look at it in Canada, is that if you allow, if you say you cannot have any kind of limits, then that means that one side, if they can raise more money, they can drown out the voices on the other side, and that will undermine the principle of trying to have the most robust debate and getting the best uh, information out to the voters. So there's another way of looking at it. I don't think democracy has crumbled in Canada because they take this other point of view. And what we have seen, and if you just look at 2018, and this is just talking about disclosed money because then there's another whole problem with dark money groups. But of the money we know about, there were in 2018, I think 126 individuals or couples who gave over a million dollars to various political committees. There were 12 or 13 individuals or couples who gave over $10 million. And there was one family that gave over $100 million. Now, how does that square with the principle of one person, one vote, and equal representation when people with that kind of resources, and there are a number of people at the, at the higher end, you know, billionaires who have very intense ideological views that they're trying to get across and that they want to reshape the country around their ideological vision, they're spending big bucks. They are spending millions of millions of dollars in every election. Where does that leave the rest of us? Yeah. Congressman, how's this sort of, you know, lived on, do, would you like to move to Canada, as it were? The, uh, you know, how's it, how's it lived like in a day-to-day, in a day-to-day like <laughs> day campaign, you know, on the, on the ground that, you know, how, do, how does, Citizens United make your life as a candidate more difficult? Yeah, I mean, it, it, that's actually an interesting question because I came into politics as a state representative. I got elected when I was 28 years old, um, and I got elected in 2002. Mm -hmm. So I took office here in, in the legislature mm -hmm. in 2003, and I think that was before you really had these huge super PACs uh, that the Cokes have started and others have started. 2010. Uh, that's when, it, yeah, 2010 was when it started. Okay, so... I kind of existed in a period before that, uh, and then obviously after it. And you're right. I mean, we've seen this big money. Part of what's balanced that out some, although I, I agree I, we need to defeat Citizens United and take big money out of politics, is that, fun, is that political giving has also become more democratized 
because of the internet, right? Back in 2002, nobody was raising money off of Facebook ads or even hardly off of emails, you know, where you get these political emails and then you donate $10 or $50 or whatever it is to candidates. So that, that has been, if the Citizens United is kind of the dark story of money in politics, the internet boom and the democratization of giving, I think, has been the bright side, right? The mm. silver lining in all of that. And it's interesting now that you ask because I've, I've kind of seen the effects of both of those things. Speaking of the internet, I, I actually don't know whether people on the stage can speak to this or even who can, but you, you know, we have among the, the, the sort of horror stories that you read about in preparation for the 2020 election, is it's almost out of dystopian science fiction, but the possibility of internet manipulation, foreign interference to actually reach in and change votes and sow, sow chaos, uh, or not even foreign, but but possibly. Um, there's there's uh, an assessment by the intelligence community that this didn't happen in 2016, if you know if you um, credit that, but that that it's a real risk going forward. Wait, 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 wait. Yep. They said they didn't change votes, but there yeah. certainly was disinformation. Yes. Okay. So that's right. So the, thank you very much. So right, it's a two-part problem, and let's. So there's first the the real kind of of you know headline. Can you actually reach into the machine? Then the, then there's the way in which you they did, and you will going forward manipulate voters and social media, and that you know that's volume among the volume ones of of uh, of Mueller. Do you are you guys aware? Is anyone on, in this um, uh, room actually working on that problem? And how do you even go about getting your arms around it? Well, so I don't. I'm, yeah. We've been doing a lot of work with Facebook, Google, and Twitter around well, fighting with them. What are like partnering with them? Yeah, I mean partnering and pressuring um, <laughs> because a lot of what happened in 2016. I mean, Facebook acknowledges that they yeah. had been asleep at the switch. They fighting. They say that they were, they were doing through AI fighting the bots that were creating, you know, these these folks, that, the bots that were setting up these accounts and getting like two followers and then kind of sending these automated messages. But the disinformation around creating fear, negative messages, um, targeting black voters in particular, and there's been a lot of documentation, and the intelligence community has documented that. Um, and so now, just two days ago, I was with Cheryl Sandberg and a small crew of civil rights leaders and her team focusing on what is needed for Facebook to set up a real um, operation to counter disinformation. Not only we've been pushing her in the lead up to the 2020 election, but also in the census, because yeah. as Joyce referenced, the citizenship question was designed to cause a lot of fear among not only immigrant communities, but mixed status families, and frankly, Americans giving data to the federal government. And so there's a lot of potential for disinformation campaigns to create a lot of fear in these communities and to have people refuse to be counted in the census and uh, not, not vote. And so this is work for the leadership conference that we can do all of the GOTV work and we're fighting voter suppression and there's a lot of organizations that are litigating and we launched a big project called All Voting is Local that's working in eight states to, to work with local election officials to do everything from recruiting poll workers and, and working on uh, addressing broken machines and the like. But this issue around disinformation could get all of us despite all of these efforts. And so we've been really kind of engaged with 
uh, social media platforms around literally until the 20, until three weeks before the midterm election, Facebook still, despite everything that had happened with Cambridge Analytica and everything else, did not have a voter, a voting rights policy on the books. And we got them to set up a war room, but it was two weeks before the election that they did. We trained the war room on what traditional voter suppression looked and like. And by war room, you mean this would actually be there during the election? That's yeah, so it was 12 employees at Facebook that were, that were working to to enforce uh, against disinformation. But now what we've said is you need, that needs to be set up 365 days of the year, like needs to be set up now because disinformation is prevailing. But then we had this great conversation. They're setting up these war rooms. And two days ago, um, Nick Clegg from Facebook at the, in the policy leadership announced that politicians would be exempt from, uh, that violate their rules would be exempt uh, as part of the newsworthiness exception from this rule and this is really problematic because we have officials who shall remain yeah. nameless. It, well, maybe not. The president who is campaigning <laughs> using lies. You didn't say his name. You didn't. Um, literally using lies as part yeah. of the campaign right now around who's, you know, there was a thing yesterday, that, an email that he sent out, uh, his campaign sent out. Washington Post said these contain these following lies. They did a fact-checking thing. It's been, they poured $2 million yesterday, a million today. Uh, over millions of people have viewed this now. And the question is, if it is a known, if these, if these campaigns are sending out known lies, why, how are we actually going to not let this loophole that they're creating swallow everything else that we're trying to do with the platforms? And so we need to keep the pressure on. Frankly, I think Congress eventually is going to have to figure out how to regulate these industries in some way, shape, or form. I learned the other day that um, unregulated radio was how Hitler built up the Nazi regime. And if we don't keep our eye on the level of disinformation and propaganda that could take over our democracy, that's how we set up authoritarian regimes. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a, it's a great point. I thought of this actually when Lewandowski was testifying and saying, you know, basically, yeah, I lied, so what? I don't, you know, I don't have to tell the, the truth. I mean, it, it's been a casualty of the Trump era, but you would think that the principle, it's all right if you lie to one another or the press, but for a candidate to lie flat out, it ought to be regulable, but it's basically not, right? There's Well, we have rules at the FEC, and I've been trying to strengthen them about who has to, what kind of information is attached to what you're reading online, particularly if it's political advertising, then it ought to carry a disclaimer. And the question is, you know, where's the disclaimer? Does it have to be right on the face of the ad? Can you link to it? Is that, is that good enough? We know that most people don't actually click on the links. Can you bury it in a teeny little icon that people won't really see? And so they don't even know they have the option of, of uh, clicking on it. I have thrown out I've lost track of how many proposals at the FEC to try and um, uh, address more strongly foreign money that's being spent in our elections, as well as to try and get better disclaimer information on online ads. And um, it just meets a brick wall on the other side of the table. Everything at the FEC has to be done on a bipartisan basis. That's great if you can get bipartisan buy-in for some of this stuff. And uh, it's, uh, it's unfortunately a very heavy lift. You know, another piece of that also is... Uh Obviously, I, I came into the Intelligence Committee around July of 2016, and then shortly after that is when we were confronted with the Russian interference. And I learned back then something that has not been really corrected much, which is there's no federal law. And at the time, I couldn't find a single state law. That may have changed by now. But there's no federal law, and I'll say hardly any state laws, 
that set a minimum baseline of election security or cybersecurity protection for our voting systems. Right. So there's no standard. It really is the wild west out there. For for county governments that administer elections. uh, And the way that our government was operating was that because the federal government doesn't impose any standards on the states, the federal government, the FBI, and other departments basically tell the states, hey, if we can be helpful in helping you all run through the traps to secure your systems and so forth, then we're available to you. But there are a handful of states, even in 2016, that never consulted with the federal government. So they never came forward. So we don't know how secure their systems were. Also, there was not much follow-up, as far as I could tell, after the election by our, our federal government with the states to figure out whether there was any interference, actual interference. Again, we were relying on local jurisdictions to come forward and say that something happened. Yeah. Uh, so that whole process, I think, really, really, really needs to be tightened up and improved. And there is this, again, peculiar vulnerability of so much in election law, which is once you're on the other side of it, there's so many ways in other areas of the law you can still try to remedy, but so often you can't do it. All right, so we have this long list. I want to get to HR1, but the the two sort of specific problems I wanted to make sure to cover uh, are um, poll closures, on the one hand, and then the allegations, the widespread allegations that voter fraud uh, is endemic in the country. So let me just, you know, voter fraud, uh, poll closures, discuss. But, you know, the, uh, any, any thoughts you have on these two things? And then, because then I'd like to be sure we, we uh, are able to explain to everybody uh, about the, the different provisions in the bill that Vanita mentioned. So let me talk about voter fraud as a former U.S. attorney, because allegations of voting fraud would often land on my desk. Um, I was uh, in the office as a prosecutor and then as U.S. attorney for 25 plus years. In those 25 years, there was only one case of voting fraud that was legitimate, and it impacted about eight votes. So not to, you know, not to laugh at that, but just to say voting fraud is not a system-wide problem in American uh, elections. What is a problem is voter suppression. Voter suppression was something that we saw in every election. Whether it was postcards that said Democrats vote on Thursday when the election was Tuesday, which is something that we saw in every election, whether it was people being moved off of voter rolls, making it more difficult to vote. You know, Vanita and I spent time on this together. Alabama was was out of standard, as are many states, for requirements for registration. And there are so many systematic efforts to make it more difficult for certain people in this country to What did you do? Because I think every U.S. attorney office did it. I I actually don't know if they still are. But didn't you have a regular... What did you do as U.S. attorney sort of election by election? So, you know, every office in the country, there are 94 U.S. attorney's offices nationwide, 93 U.S. attorneys. Um, It's your Jeopardy trivia. Um, Guam and the Mariana Islands share a U.S. attorney. But every office has a district election officer. And that person is charged with being a central collection point for problems that come up during an election. And, and in some states, it's a little bit easier because they vote for extended periods of time. If you're in a state like Alabama where the polls are only open for one day, Suppression problems become very acute, and you have to have relationships that let you deal with them in this very tight time frame. 
But I think the kicker on all of this is that early in the Trump administration, the president created something that he called the voter, uh, the Election Integrity Commission, chaired by a a gentleman from Kansas named Kobach, who is sort of infamous, if you're familiar with him, for being one of these people who constantly complain about voting fraud while trying to promote suppression. And the interesting thing about that commission, which was supposed to find instances of voter fraud, was that it came up empty-handed, and it ultimately had to be shut down. One of the members on that commission who tried to bring real problems to the forefront in a sensible way was an Alabama probate judge who I was used to working with who ran elections. And the points that he made were very simple. He said, you know, counties have to run elections, and sometimes they're poorly funded, and they don't have state-of-the-art equipment that's safe from, ha- from um, hacking. So we need to have something the equivalent of, of HAVA, the Help America Vote Act, which provided funding. And there, there is, I think, a little bit of funding, but we're not at the levels we should be. He had these very common sense requirements. And so you'll recognize this strategy. The strategy of the commission was to disband and not publicly distribute his recommendations. And, and just to uh, follow up on what Joyce was saying, that um, her experience in Alabama is not anomalous, uh, one scholar, Justin Levitt, looked at, after the 2014 election, at every, every election between 2000 and 2014, over a billion votes, and found 31 instances uh, of potentially credibly alleged voter fraud. It's, it's just not, it's not happening out there. And um, there was a case in Kansas, Fish v. Kobach, uh, not that long ago, where um, they trotted out all of their best voter fraud experts, and the judge said that none of they were entirely yeah. lacking in credibility. All of the the evidence, and I put that in quotation marks, that they claimed supported uh, voter fraud. The judge said, you know, none of that is credible. What you're what you're bringing forward, I, I think we really need to demand facts from people who make these claims. Facts are not partisan. Facts are just facts. And if you don't have facts, you shouldn't be saying things. I mean, it's like the dragon or unicorn of the voting system. It's this mythical figure that keeps getting trotted out. Okay, on on the other hand, though, what about, I mean, poll closures seem like a funny one. Because everything else we've talked about, gerrymandering, these phony um, uh, violations, you can sort of see the political overlay. But do we think that the raft of poll closures, you know, how's it, how's it, how's it working and how, how do, how are, how's it being, you know, is it a political agenda as best you can tell? And, and what, what magnitude of the problem is it? Well, just before I answer that, I do think. Um, just before I answer that, I think it's important to um, to recognize that just like Justin Levitt had studied, there's been study after study, and the Brennan Center recently found that it is more likely that you will get hit by lightning than that you will find uh, an instance of voter fraud. That the whole concept in all of this has been really a political agenda to to fuel yeah. and foment voter suppression laws, and I think it's just important to name that. Um, and the problem, I mean. Voting rights has become incredibly uh, weaponized for partisan gain. As a civil rights lawyer, it is a deeply dangerous place for us to be to have the agenda to promote voting in this country be seen as so hyper-partisan. You called me a progressive activist when you opened. Did I? But I'm a civil rights lawyer. I'm not. You can call me a progressive activist, but I will work with folks on the right and the left to actually advance voting. And the thing about the Voting Rights Act that folks need to know 
is that the Voting Rights Act in 1965 and then every subsequent time that it was reauthorized by Congress, because Congress had to do this repeatedly, it was reauthorized by a Republican president and Republican control of at least one House of Congress. And when the Shelby County decision comes down in 2013, in 2014, members of the House try to reintroduce a, a restoration bill and not a single Republican member of Congress would co-sponsor it. And that's where we are today. And we have to dig ourselves out to figure out how to get folks like the champions that we had, like Congressman Sensenbrenner, who had taken this on, that that kind of cohort on the other side is not there to push a bipartisan voting rights agenda. And it is very, very dangerous. And I need to say that because I think it's really no, it's, I mean, yeah, and what could be a more bipartisan principle that underlies right. it, right? Right, right. But, the, yeah, and so I can talk, but I know yeah. you asked about poll well, questions. Well, both, both. But if it's yeah. not reauthorized, then, correct me if I'm wrong, I could be wrong, but then they don't, when they're drawing districts, they don't have to take into consideration minority voting rights, or anything. That's right? that's right. I mean, and that is what is that yeah. is what is terrifying about entering the twenty the twenty twenty one redistricting when is it, cycle. When is it up again? You all know when it's. It'll be well, so the census 21. will take place next year, right. and then starting in case the which case? voting rights act. Oh, the voting, the voting rights, rights act, act will yeah. uh, the house will be marking it up in October twenty third is the date that it's marking it up, and it will be up for a vote then subsequently in the next two weeks after that. But we know exactly where it's going to end up uh, once it moves to the Senate. So this is the long haul, and we have to be in it for the long haul. But um, but you were asking about poll closures. Yeah, I mean, give us an, an actual concrete sense of the problem. In a state in which it's happening a lot, are they sort of going through and just closing functional ones and not, you know, what, what's, so, what's a sort of abuse story? I, I'm looking at my phone because I wanted to get the stats right. So we did a report involved a lot of FOIAs to, uh, for this. This is part of the problem is it's hard to detect this. But we found 1,688 polling place closures between 2012 and 2018, which was almost double the 868 closures found when we did the same report in 2016. So there's been a lot of closures in, since 2016. Um, and in Texas, just so folks know, it's kind of, as I said, it was a mega closer. There have been 750 polling places closed since the Shelby County decision in Texas. Um, in Travis County, right here where we are, 67 closures. So 32% of polling places have been closed in, in Travis County. And not really, so that just means you're, you were in that poll that you've just got to go another three miles to a strange place that you've never voted and before. And sometimes it's a lot farther, but I, but, so it's this is the thing is there may be legitimate reasons to call closing close polling places. So Texas has introduced big mega vote centers. And um, and so that has been used as a justification for closing polling places. The problem is, is this is like a really high number of uh, closures in states that had histories of racial discrimination and voting. And what has been lost is the ability to document what the racial impact is of these systematic closures. So it's not Again, because of the voting rights decision. Right, right because yeah. of the Shelby County decision, because yeah. that is exactly, we had a crew of Section 5 analysts in the Justice Department that would sit and analyze where uh, different communities lived and down to the census tract data and be able to document what the racial impact would be of um, uh, closing of poll sites. Native Americans have a huge problem with access to polling places, and we have to, that's a, a huge problem that no administration has successfully and properly tackled. But this is what gets this is what gets lost. Yeah. All right. So so much doom and gloom. And I wanted to well, think of some way to, 
you know, to, to have at least some uh, kind of maybe in the distant horizon um, some, some hope for a, a ray of sunshine. So I thought we could at least end by telling people about HR1, what are the main uh, components, how, you know, what its prospects are. Uh, it sounds like we already know it'll be, we expect it to be introduced, but let's, you know, so this would be a pretty big day, almost, would, maybe almost like the Voting Rights Act, you know, uh, to, were it actually to pass. What, what, what does it consist of? What are its prospects? You know, let's, let's uh, talk a little bit about a hopeful uh, scenario. Because we passed it a few months ago. Yeah. And yeah. The part that sticks out to me is the dark money part trying to end Citizens United, uh, which I think we need to do as a country. Well, I mean, it doesn't, it, it, it addresses dark money. It doesn't end Citizens United because um, I, I don't think it can be done by statute. Uh, there's a lot of great provisions in H.R. 1 from my perspective that talk about money and politics. There's the Honest Ads Act component that would extend to the Internet the same kind of rules we have for broadcast ads. There's the Disclose Act, which really would get uh, better disclosure of a lot of the dark money that's out there. There's also uh, in there, and I have mixed feelings about this, uh, a uh, whole section on FEC reform. Uh, the FEC right now is an evenly divided body. It's supposed to have six commissioners, no more than three from any one political party. It takes four votes to do most important things that we would do there. Right now, we only have three commissioners. So that's a big problem because we can't do what we need to do. We can't. Uh, two Republicans resigned, is that right? Or uh, well, well one, one Democrat and um, two Republicans have resigned over the last, but it's over the last over and two years and, and one in the last month. And Ellen, when, can I just ask, do you read anything devious into that? Does that impair the FEC's ability to act and was it intentional? Or would that be a misread of that situation? I don't want to put you on the spot. Well, it definitely impairs but you our did. ability to act. No, that's okay. That's okay. That's okay. I guess I said it, it, it definitely sorry. impairs our ability to act. We can't vote on enforcement matters. We can't launch any investigations. We can't issue advisory opinions. We can't issue rulemakings. We can't do any of the important things that we need to do. Um, since my uh, one of my colleagues left about a month ago, and I had literally five days' notice that that he was leaving, and you know we scrambled to get as much done as we could in the last five days, but boy, it would have been nice to. Get Get a little bit more notice uh, so that we could have tried to get more done and organize better. All right. I feel we could go on for several more hours, but we're out of time. I'll, did, did, are you were I, winning? For, yeah. I want to just end on the hopeful yeah. note, yeah. which is to say that despite all of the challenges that we face, things like HR1 really provide a North Star for an agenda well, that I believe should uh, a pro-civil rights Congress and a pro-civil rights administration uh, come into office in 2021 needs to be the very first order of business because everything else that we care about rides and falls on our democratic institutions being healthy, on being able to have a rule of law, and we need to unrig our democracy so that it's working for all people. But the thing that's amazing to me is recognizing the amount of activism and energy. This, these issues used to be considered super wonky and abstract yeah. and boring. And the thing is, when you look at the midterm elections and you look at the ballot initiatives that were on, and folks are voting for those independent commissions, and they're voting for automatic registration, and they're doing it in red and blue states, I think there is a democracy, a pro-democracy movement afoot in this country, maybe because we have been facing one of the biggest, gravest crises to our democracy, so we are feeling 
that much more urgent about these issues. But to me, that is gives me so much hope, and we need to continue to build power for these issues and public will to have candidates that are going to represent all of us in, in Congress. And I want to follow up on that in, uh, in Michigan. <laughs> There was, uh, there's a, a new, by referendum, they have this new independent redistricting commission because one young woman started a post mm -hmm. on Facebook and started to gather other people um, who were interested in the same issue. It started with one person. So never doubt that one person can have a huge impact in our democracy. Okay, Austin. Please. Thank you. Thank you so much to Ellen, Joaquin, Venita, and Joyce. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to this special edition of Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Talking Feds Pod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. And you can also check us out on the web at TalkingFeds.com, where we have full episode transcripts. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks very much for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jenny Josephson, Dave Moldovan, Anthony Lamos, and Rebecca Lopatin. David Lieberman is our contributing writer. Production assistance by Sarah Philippoum. Research by Sam Trachtenberg. And transcripts by Matthew Flanagan. And huge thanks to Evan Smith, Jessica Weaver, Michelle Aldridge, Claire Rui, and the rest of the team in the library at the Texas Tribune Festival and the entire crew at the Texas Tribune Festival for all of their hard work and kindness to us. It's really been a great honor to be invited here and even more fun to be here. Thanks also to the Charles Moore Foundation and Kevin Keem. As always, thanks to the incredible Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Dolito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.